Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, command you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You may be seated. So if you have your Bibles, open them up, turn them on to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to be in the first nine verses this morning. We're going to pick back up in Matthew uh, next January. We'll most likely pick up where we left off uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And I know that some of you women have just finished a Jen Wilkins study on Joshua, so I recognize I am uh, stepping into some big shoes here this morning. So if you want a full introduction of the book of Joshua, you're not going to get it this morning, but I did write one on my blog. We expect that to be on the website probably tomorrow. You can learn more about uh, all the intricacies of this book, how it came to be, but for our Our purposes this morning, I simply want to give us a little bit of context to understand what it is that we're wading into. So, the great Moses has died. This is a big moment in the development of the nation of Israel. Moses is dead. Moses, who heard from God at the burning bush. Moses, who went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Moses, who parted the Red Sea. Moses, who received the Ten Commandments. Moses, who oversaw the first tabernacle building. Moses, who led his people through wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses is dead. And Joshua has been called to step into his place. And everything that we know about Joshua would lead us to believe that he has been a faithful assistant to Moses all these years. But I don't care how faithful he has been. Being the number two is just different than being the number one. So I've tried to put myself this week in, in, in their spot and think, you know, how would these Israelites have felt with Moses being dead? And the best modern comparison I could make, and it isn't even really modern anymore, would be with Franklin Delano Roosevelt when he died. All right, was anybody in this room alive in 1945? Any, I, two, three, three. They're, they're not raising their hands. Other people are pointing at them. 
Three people in this room were alive in 1945. If you were a certain age, I don't know what that age would be, 12, 15, 18, and you were alive in 1945, my, my hunch is you remember where you were the moment you heard that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was dead. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a four-term president. He had led this nation uh, through not only the, the Depression, but at the moment he died, he was in the middle of leading us through a worldwide war for our freedom. I mean, many of the soldiers who were fighting overseas didn't remember a day that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was not their president. And he's dead. All right? Moses had led the Israelites four times as long as Franklin Delano Roosevelt led us. So, well, not four times, 40 years. So that would be, all right, my math's off, at least twice as long. (laughs) All right. So it would be like somebody leading us since 1979. How many of you weren't even alive in 1979? I don't believe you. You're lying. (laughs) Really was it? Okay, okay. Uh, I, I came into this world in 1979, but 1979, I mean, that would have been a long time for someone to lead us. 1979 was a world without internet. It did not have cell phones or Fortnite. I mean, this is starting to sound like a pretty bleak place to some of you. In 1979, we had just uh, been exposed to the VHS cassette and Star Wars So this is a long, long time ago. And a galaxy far, far, yes, no. It can feel like a galaxy far, far away. But imagine if somebody had led us that long and now that person is dead. Surely these Israelites, they were feeling uncertainty. They were feeling anxiety. Probably some of them were genuinely worried about the future of their nation at at this point. But never mind the Israelites. How would Joshua feel? I mean, this, you're stepping into some big shoes. And as a rule of thumb, you don't want to be the guy who follows the guy, right? I mean, how many of you remember who the president was after Abraham Lincoln? All right, how many of you remember the prime minister after Winston Churchill? Who remembers the guard that followed Michael Jordan? Okay, no, you don't count apparently. I mean, this is what Joshua is stepping into and he had to be scared. I'm sure he had to be terrified because he wasn't called in this moment just to maintain the status quo. He was to mobilize these people, bring them into war and establish a new home for the Israelites. So what a perfect Mother's Day text. (laughs) A man called into war. Well... The call of motherhood, I know, can bring probably just as much uncertainty, just as much anxiety, just as much insecurity, and maybe a little bit of sheer terror as Joshua's call. And mother or not, all of us have been in seasons of life where things are changing so much and so rapidly that it begins to challenge the limits of our strength and our courage. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at how God reassures and comforts Joshua in that call. How God goes about bringing strength and courage in Joshua and I want to see that he's making the same promises to us today. 
So there are four things that God is telling Joshua. You can see them in your outline in your bulletin. God wants Joshua to know that God has a plan. He wants him to know that he always keeps his promises. He wants him to know that he will be guided in his word. And then lastly, he wants Joshua to know that God will always be with him. These are promises for Joshua and promises for us. So let's walk through them. First, God has a plan. Moses is dead, but it doesn't matter because God's plan was never contingent upon Moses. People are going to change. People are going to die. Circumstances are going to change. Dreams are going to die, but God's plan does not change. And we see this right off the bat in verse two. Moses My servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. So do you hear that? Who's giving the land? God. God's the one doing it. God has a plan. God is not hindered because Moses is no longer around. And I think if there was an astute Israelite among them, Maybe there were, maybe there weren't, I have no idea. But I think an astute Israelite who understood that God has a plan would have even looked at Moses' death and be hopeful. They would have known that not only does this not hinder God's plan, this was a part of God's plan. They would have known that they couldn't enter into the promised land as long as Moses is leading the charge. Do you remember the reason that they wandered around in the wilderness so long? Yeah, sin. I mean, how, how long should that hike have taken? I don't know, not 40 years. From, from Egypt over to the promised land, maybe four months is how long that, that journey should have taken. But it took 40 years because the Israelites did not trust that God was going to bring his plan to, to pass. And Moses himself did not trust that God was going to bring this plan to pass. So the Israelites, they grumble the whole way. But then Moses, it becomes very clear that he, he wants to take actions into his own hands. You may remember in Numbers 20, the people don't have clean drinking water. And for the second time, God has decided he wants to provide water through a rock. Only this time, he tells Moses, speak to the rock. I don't want you to do anything, but just tell that rock, water come forth. And what does Moses do? He goes to that rock and he beats that rock. And, and you might think, well, maybe just Moses misunderstood. Let's, let's not be too harsh on Moses. But look, in Numbers 20.10, this is how he's speaking to the people. He says, hear now, you rebels. Okay, he's not, it's not found, sounding very gracious. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? So who does Moses think is bringing this plan to pass? It sounds like Moses' hope is in Moses. And it's confirmed by hearing what God says in verse 12. God says, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So circumstances are changing, but Moses' death, if you really understand that God has a plan, this is a good thing. This might be a sign that the plan is going to progress, that we're one step closer to entering this promised land. So we, as believers, can't think, well, certainly we don't want to think that God's plan is hindered by an abrupt change of circumstances. 
But we need to challenge ourselves to think that maybe this is the way that God wants to bring his plan about and that these circumstances are better than the hopes and aspirations and plans that we had in the beginning. I mean, how do you, how do you think the early Christians felt when they, when they got the news that the Apostle Paul had been beheaded in Rome? That had to be a blow. I mean, there, there had to be at least a little bit of uncertainty, a little bit of anxiety. I guarantee you there are people who, who looked at the Apostle Paul who seemingly, you know, humanly speaking, he, he established Christianity in the Roman Empire. There had to be people who were wondering, is this faith even going to continue at this point without the Apostle Paul? And I guarantee you none of them and probably not even the Apostle Paul could have imagined what all would happen with the Christian faith. I know you've heard me say this before, but currently almost half of all the Christians who have ever lived are currently living. I mean, the Apostle Paul could not have imagined that kind of growth globally. He didn't even know this part of the globe even existed. Yet people were wondering, is this even going to continue without the Apostle Paul? So God's plan will go forward. And that knowledge, it made Joshua strong and courageous and it should make us strong and courageous. Secondly, God is reminding Joshua that he keeps his promises. So God's plan, you know, we call that the doctrine of providence. He will provide. That's what we call providence. So that God has a plan and that he has promises, these are overlapping, but they're not, they're not the same thing. So God's promises are the way that he helps bring us into his plan. God's promises are the way that he communicates, this is what my plan is. Secondarily, it's a, it's a way to, to see that God is faithful to the promises that he makes. I mean, it, it's one thing just to say, I've got a plan. <laughs> and if God wanted to say, I've got a plan, God could say, I've got a plan. And that should be enough. But it's a whole other thing to say, here it is. Here's the plan. And that's what God is doing in providing us with his promises. So what promise does he remind Joshua of? It's like, I mean, up until the point of Joshua, basically there's one, promise, there's one promise. I mean, God says he'll do other things, but there's one promise that they all would have known, that they all would have been waiting for, that they all would have been praying for. And that promise is that they would inherit the land, that they would find and move in to the promised land that God had for them. Look at verse six. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. God's promises are the most sure thing that we have. I think Joshua knew it. He had to be reminded of it, but he knew it. I mean, the laws of physics, they might not be operating 10 seconds from now, but the the promises of God are the most sure thing that we have in our life. And if we understand the promises and know the promises and embrace the promises, the result is that we will be strong and courageous. God could have said to Joshua, suck it up, man. (laughs) Just get it together and do what I've said. And God is God and God could do whatever he wants, but that's not what he's chosen to do. God in his grace has chosen to give Joshua a foundation upon which courage is more likely to grow. He's given him a field in which courage is 
more likely to blossom. When, uh, I guess it's been a few years now, but I've had shingles three times. Thank you. Some of you understand that it, it really is hard. Only twice really bad, but all three times my doctors told me my shingles came from stress. And my sweet, caring wife, in the midst of all my pain, would tell me, sweetie, you just need to stop stressing out so much. <laughs> I'd be like, I know you're right. I, I can't just turn it off, though. Like, I, it's not something like, like a switch. Oh, thank you. We're better now. And in the same way, I can't just turn off my stress. We can't always just turn on courage. And God understands that. So God gives us things to help our, our courage to bloom. And one of the main things that he gives us are these promises. That, because understanding that someone is going to do what they say they're going to do, it's a game changer. I mean, if, you, if you believe your spouse is going to keep their marital vows, that's going to create confidence in your marriage that's going to fundamentally change your whole relationship. If you believe your friend is not going to go around and gossip about you, then that's going to create trust in a friendship that will enable you to go to deeper places and, and tell that person more about your own sin, your own faults, your own hopes, your own insecurities. It's going to cause the friendship to blossom. About three years ago, I was teaching one of my boys how to jump off a diving board, which you wouldn't think you have to teach that. I mean, it's falling, basically. But he was on the diving board, and he really wanted to jump. He saw his friends jumping, and he, but he was scared. And I said, all right, buddy, I'll get in the water, and I'll catch you. And I'll never forget, he looked at me, and he said, you promise? You promise you're really going to catch me? And I said, I promise and his belief that I would do what I said I would do gave him the courage to jump in that water. And we're talking about a very sinful dad here. <laughs> How much more true is it when we're talking about the God of the universe? When he promises something, he does it. And that should make us strong, bold, and courageous. And I can imagine somebody here thinking, all right, Jim, I, I hear you, I accept your argument, but Joshua was hearing these promises made audibly from God. How do I know what God's promises are for me? I'm very glad you asked. The Bible. The Bible's the way that we understand the promises that God has for us, but we now live in one of the least biblically literate cultures well, let me not say that way. We now live in a culture that is far more biblically, biblically illiterate than it has ever been before. So we don't know a lot of these promises, but God has promises for us. And I don't want to, I don't want to make anybody feel under the pile. I don't want to shame anybody, especially if you're new to the faith. It's okay that you don't know all the promises, but I want us to ask ourselves, are there ways that our walk with God is tangibly affected because we don't know these promises? And if you don't know a lot of them, I want to encourage you that I was there with you. I, I wasn't always very biblically illiterate. I grew up going to Camp Weewa, or Wee Warm as we called it, every summer. And I remember singing about Father Abraham. And it wasn't until I was a missionary that I realized we weren't singing about Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> there was an Abraham in the Bible, and he had many sons. That's who we were singing about. 
So if you don't know a lot of these promises, you don't feel like you're biblically illiterate, it's okay, but I want to nudge you that there is strength and courage to be found if you do read your Bible and know these promises. We have promises like comfort and joy in our trials in 2 Corinthians 1, peace in our anxieties in Philippians 4, provision for our needs in Matthew 6 and Philippians 4, transformation into the image of Christ in Romans 8, the return of Jesus who will fully establish this kingdom in John 14, and an, an eternal life with him in John 10. We have so many promises. But we first need to know what they are. And the second caveat that I want to give is just knowing these promises is not enough. These promises mean nothing if they're not made to you. So Satan, he knows all the promises of God, but they don't benefit him in any way. But when we believe in Jesus Christ and we commit our lives to him, then we are guaranteed that these promises, they're for us. So we have to know them and then we have to make sure they're for us by responding to God and his son, Jesus Christ. So if Joshua is going to be bold and courageous and accept the call in his life, he needs to believe that God has a plan. He needs to know that he keeps the promises he makes. And then thirdly, he needs to know that God will guide us in his word. I hadn't, I remember when this revelation hit me a few years ago. I, we were, I was looking at Joshua. I was leading a small Bible study on it. And I realized that up until this point in, in biblical history, Joshua is the most relatable person that we have. Because Joshua is the first person who is called to follow God primarily through his word. Look at verse 7 and 8. Only be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. So the law refers to the first five books of Moses. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may, be, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from our mouth, from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. I have to tell you, it was hard not to make my whole sermon on this point <laughs> because we have so much in the word and the word, it does so many different things. The word shows us our sin. It shows us grace. It gives us wisdom. It points us to Jesus, his first coming, his second coming. I think I could probably do five sermons right there on the things that I just, that I just named. But in the context of Joshua, I think the emphasis that God is placing on the word is its ability to make us wise and prosper. I think that's the emphasis of what God's trying to communicate to Joshua here. And because of some really bad theology amongst us, I, I need to stop and define this word prosper. Because there are, there are people out there who would say, if you're obedient enough to the word of God and you have enough faith, then you're going to merit health, wealth, and happiness. I, I think a few months ago, I told you when my wife was going through chemotherapy, I had one of these people come to me and tell me Angela had cancer because of our own sin. And I cannot tell you the words that I wanted to say to that person at that moment. But because of this, 
we have well-meaning Christians who have swung the pendulum all the way over here and wanted to throw out prosperity, prosperity altogether. And we can't do that because prosperity is all over the Bible. It's all over the Old Testament. There's something about the word of God that does make us prosperous. So what we want to do is not throw out prosperity altogether. We just want to define it well. So the way that I'm going to define what it means to prosper is simply to thrive at what it is that God has called us to do. To prosper means to thrive at what it is that God has called us to do. Because grace and obedience, they were, they were never meant to be conflicting values. They, they're meant to operate together. It's only in obedience to the word that we really enjoy God and know him and thrive in his grace. So it's through obedience that we enjoy God. And when we enjoy God, we prosper at what it is that he's called us to do. This makes perfect sense. And the calling is going to be different on all of our lives. I mean, for Joshua, he was called to lead his people into battle and take the promised land. David was called to reign as king. Jeremiah was called to preach and for most of his life never be heard. The call of Stephen was to die. Our calls are going to be very different. But if any of us is going to accept the call in our life, however uncertain, however scary it is, we're going to have to be guided by the word of God if we are going to prosper. And so last week I got a, an up, a front row seat to a really neat picture of some men and women who were led by the word of God into a really difficult call and who had ministries that really prospered. I went on the fifth grade field trip with my son to the Williamsburg, Jamestown area. And I was the trip blogger. How field trips have changed. (laughs) And we, when we went to Jamestown, I guess I was a little rough on my American history. I learned a lot more than I'm willing to admit. But Jamestown, you may remember, it was the first permanent British settlement in America. And it was, it was established for one reason, to make money. They wanted to come over here. They wanted to find gold and silver. And when it became clear that they were not going to find gold and silver, tobacco saved the day. They, they found out they could grow tobacco and this venture could finally be prosperous. But the problem with growing tobacco is that it required huge amounts of labor in this totally untouched territory. And so what the early settlers decided to do is import African slaves to assist them in this labor. And as the colonies grew, the demand for labor grew until the time of the Revolutionary War. I did not realize that the population of Virginia, the largest of the colonies, was more than 50% slaves. So our nation was heavily dependent on this practice. And there were men and women who stood up, men and women who were led by the word of God, and they knew that all people are really created equal, (laughs) not just a certain color, everyone. They knew that the call of the Christian was to stand up for the voiceless, to be the power for the powerless. And they would have known verses like Exodus 21, 16, that says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. They knew that God abhorred this practice. And can you imagine how scary it would be to stand up to a society that was totally dependent on this thing? 
It would have been so easy to look the other way, so easy to call it a necessary evil, especially when, if you were white, it benefited you. But there were people led by the word of God who stood up to this practice. They were bold and they were courageous and they suffered and people hated them for it. But they won the day. So where are places that we go when we're afraid? What's the first place we go? Because I know we have a tendency to want to cry out to God, to give us a sign, speak to me in some special way, not realizing that he has already spoken in his word. He has spoken abundantly clear. And all too often, you know, the, God's word is someplace we go as a last resort. God's word isn't our constant companion making us wise, helping us to prosper in everything that it is that he's called us to do. So what would it mean? What would it take for us to take the word of God as seriously as God is wanting Joshua to? You know, how, when's the last time that one of us curled up next to a fire with a little Leviticus or Nahum? <laughs> you know, I think if we do read, somebody's pretty excited about Nahum back there. I, we are Floridians, so maybe, maybe I should say curl up next to the AC or a pool. But we, you know, if we're reading the Bible as 21st century American Christians, probably we're just only in the New Testament. Probably we're only reading the Gospels because you know, that's the part that really matters. I heard a pastor this week compare the Bible to the Avengers saga. You know, so he was saying... You have 22 movies, but one story, all right? And, and so what would happen if you went and watched Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame, but you hadn't seen Guardians of the Galaxy and Iron Man? You'd still know the end of the story, but you would not get nearly as much out of the story as people who were familiar with all 22 movies. And in the same kind of way, the Bible is one story, 66 books, And the more we know each book, the more we know about God, the more we're going to understand who he is, what he wants to do, the more we're going to be brave and courageous, and the more we're going to prosper. God has given us all 66 books for a reason, and all 22 Avengers movies for a reason that I (laughs) preach. Uh, And Jesus says that the word of God, it nourishes our soul in the same way that, that food nourishes our body. And so, you know, we, we approach, we can approach food and scripture in various ways. So sometimes, we, you know, we go to a scripture and it's like a Shake Shack burger. You know, we're just gonna dive in and immediately be nourished. But other times with other scriptures in other situations, it needs to be, you know, it needs to be digested more like a Jolly Rancher. You know, it needs to be, it's going to take time. It's going to take meditation. But in either case, what has to happen is the words have to leave the page of the Bible or the the screen of your Bible. They have to, by way of our minds, enter into our hearts. And sometimes that happens fast. Sometimes that happens slowly. Sometimes it happens in community. Sometimes it happens in prayer. Sometimes it happens with lots of meditation. But it has to be happening always if we're going to prosper. But the words on the pages will never guide us if they don't make their way 
to our heart. All right, that was third. Lastly, God wants Joshua and us to know that he will be with us. So I've, I've had a whole point, really a point and a half, I think, lifting up scripture, commending scripture, but we have to know that at the end of the day, scripture is not the destination. Scripture is a signpost. It points us to the destination of God. We do not have a trinity made up of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures. God is God, and God is our destination, and the Scriptures point us to God. Look at verse 9. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So what in the world does it mean that God is with Joshua? That that Joshua has God's presence. That's literally what he's saying. You have my presence. Well, in Hebrew, the word for presence is the same word as face. You have my face is what God is saying. And if you have somebody's face, what do you fundamentally have? You have access to them. You have, if someone is giving you their face, you have access to them. How encouraging would that have been to Joshua to know that he has full and unfettered access to the God of the universe? That had to have a strengthening and an encouraging effect. He has full, unfettered access to the God of the universe. And we see that this promise is true for every believer over the rest of the course of human history. When David penned the words, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why is it that he didn't fear? Because you are with me. When Paul was afraid at Corinth, for whatever reason, he was afraid to go into Corinth. Jesus showed up and said something to him. What did Jesus say to comfort and strengthen Paul? I am with you. And when the disciples received the great commission, what was the great encouragement at the end of the commission? We have some King James people in the audience. Lo, I am with you always. And that promise wasn't just to the disciples, but for every believer who would follow. I am with you always. We have unfettered access to the king of the universe because Jesus has secured that access. Jesus, who had unrestricted access to God, gave up his access on the cross to give it to us. So we now, sinful people, have the access to God of a perfect son. And this is why the author of Hebrews can say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I was trying to think this week, how, how can I know if I'm growing? How can I know if I'm growing in all these things, in my understanding of God's plan, his promises, his word, and his presence? That's a lot of peas. How can I know if I'm growing? And the best diagnostic I could come up for, with for myself, and I think for you too, is if we're growing in these things, then God is getting bigger in our lives. You know, when, often when we when we first begin this journey with God, he can be restricted to Sundays. We give God Sundays and maybe if we're, you know, if we're really ambitious, some, some morning devotional time. 
But the more we grow in our understanding of who he is and what he wants to do and how he relates to us, then God begins to work his way into lots of different areas of our lives. And all of a sudden, we're, we're not just praying for the big things. We're praying for parking spots. We're bringing God into every area of our life. The more we're growing, the bigger God is getting in our, in our minds and in our hearts. And it's shown through our actions. And I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes this in his book, Prince Caspian. When Aslan and Lucy have been reunited... Lewis writes this. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, he answered. Not because you are, Lucy replied. I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. So what does this mean for us? How are we to come to these nine verses and interpret it? And I would say at a very high level, there there are two ways, and I think both ways have merit. The first way we interpret Joshua is to put ourselves in the place of Joshua. Joshua is called to be bold, courageous, to obey, and to fight. And in the same way, we are all called to be bold and courageous, to obey, and to fight. Now, our fight may be a little different. Our fight is emotional. Our fight is spiritual. But we all have battles to fight as we walk into calls in our life. As I prayed, some of you, your battle is cancer. Some of you, your battle is addiction. Some of you, your battle is straying children or not being able to have children. For all of us, our battle is our own hearts and our own sin and our desire to see God's kingdom grow in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our gyms. We all have battles to fight and we all need to be strong and courageous. And the way that we get that courage is by obeying God and his word, trusting him and his plan and his promises and experiencing his presence. That's the first way we could interpret this. The second way, and I think I could make an argument In the context of the whole Bible, the emphasis would be on the second mode of interpretation. Not to put ourselves in the place of Joshua, but to put ourselves in the place of the Israelites. Because many of you know this. In Hebrew, Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Yeshua. That's not by accident. God is, in many ways, foreshadowing the better Yeshua. Because they not only have the same name, they have the same job. So the first Yeshua that we have been looking at this morning, his job is to lead his people through warfare into the promised land that we know they're ultimately gonna lose because of their sin. But the better Yeshua that we follow, he's leading us through a harder fight into an eternal promised land that we will never lose. So we have to be sure never to stop just putting ourselves in Joshua's place. We need to always put ourselves in Israel's place because we are that marching army. And so because of that, I am today making a permanent change in the worship of Orlando Grace Church. A lot of heads just went up. I didn't know how many heads were down until they all just came up. I am making a permanent change at Orlando Grace Church. The last words I want you to hear every week is you are sent. And I've got to give credit to this idea to my friend Damian Sheeter over at New City Presbyterian Church. But every week when 
I or Michael or whoever finishes the sermon, finishes the service with a benediction, you are going to hear either at the end of the benediction or as a benediction itself. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you are sent. Because that's why we're worshiping. We worship God and he gave us worship so that we could have the fuel to be sent Monday through Saturday to go and do what we're called to do as an army marching into a foreign kingdom to claim it for the King Jesus Christ. That's the story of Joshua. And I'm really excited to walk through this this summer, if you can't tell. Would you pray with me? God, we are so thankful for great examples in the faith like Joshua. We're thankful to see that even they need encouragement, that even they need to be reminded. But we are even more thankful that we have a better Yeshua who we follow, who we serve, who is marching us into a better promised land that will never be taken from us. And we thank you that we will get to live in that promised land with you forever. How undeserving each of us are for this grace, but how joyful and grateful we are. And we pray that we would steward this honor of being chosen and sent. And that you would make us fruitful peoples to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.